Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. O Lord, we beseech thee, mercifully hear our prayers, and spare all those who confess their sins unto thee, that they whose consciences by sin are accused, by thy merciful pardon, may be absolved, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, as we begin our question and answer session, I would want to mention, please, one thing, which is, what is the number one practical thing a priest can do in his parish to promote sacramental confession and ensure that people might cultivate and develop an interest in this sacrament and using it to their spiritual health? The number one thing we can do is post times for confession in our weekly schedule. This is very important indeed, should be a high priority for us if we would like to invite our people to engage more seriously in the spiritual life. Many of our parishes have times listed for confessions during Lent, but it might be suggested that it would be good to go ahead, bite the bullet, and do it year-round, which is what we did a number of years ago. A number of years ago before that, we had times during Lent, but then we decided one year to keep the times that had been published permanently on the church calendar through the year, and it tripled the number of penitents coming to confession. So this is the most pragmatic way of promoting the sacrament in your own parishes. For example, we have a confession time every Wednesday at 11 a.m. before the noon mass, and we have a time every Thursday at 6 p.m. before the 7 p.m. mass. There's a morning time and an evening time every week and the priest is available, he's here, he's ready and positioned to receive confessions. He may not, but if he, if he does, wonderful. If not, it gives him time just to be present in church and to pray and to read. If your parish has never had any published time for confession at all, one might suggest easing into this by having a set time for confessions during Lent. That would be the most ideal time to introduce it, Many parishes have weekday times. Uh, some parishes will list times on a Sunday after morning services. Some parishes have a time on Saturday. We used to publish times on Saturday that were open-ended, and what we found is that wasn't as helpful. We really needed a, a beginning and an end, so we give one hour. There's an hour available for confessions. So if, if one has never considered the possibility of posting a regular weekly time for confession, we would encourage you please certainly to do that. And this is a way, very easily done, which will garner interest in the use of this sacrament. Also, as we have said though, if a priest is going to do that, then one needs to be at least somewhat familiar with the rite of confession. And under advisement, a priest who is about to hear confessions should make his own. Find a priest, make one's own confession, then hear the confessions of other people. So with that, let's open the church, please, to questions and comments. Do we have any? This could be an incredibly brief session. All right, yes. In the context within the church of the altar and doing confessions, how do you, what's the pragmatic way of doing that when you have other people that are wanting to do confession and the concerns for privacy? Great question. So here I'll give you an example. The church should only be used, the open church should only be used if it is certain that it is empty. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Oh, I'm sorry, yes. The question is, what do you do if there are people scurrying about your church? And someone comes for confession and expects to make the confession at the altar rail, but you have people in and out of the church nave moving about the church proper. What do you do with that? Well, the simple solution is you have to find an alternative space. So here, we typically want to hear confessions in the chapel or at the high altar, but the only way we can do that, do that is if we're certain that no one's coming in and out. We will post a sign if confessions are being heard in this space. We'll put signs on the doors entering into the nave saying, confessions being heard, please wait outside. Okay, very practical. So that way no one's going to wander in while a confession is being made. But if you're in a situation where people are just moving about the church for setting up or whatever has to be done, then it's best to find an alternative space. We use our mother's room, which is conveniently located right off of the narthex, and we actually use that as a confessional, and we will put a prayer desk and a stole in that room and a crucifix. So per the person can use that as a confessional. Uh, in your church spaces, it will be different, but if you have a room available on your campus and your building, the main thing is to be sure that as is always the case, we have to be very careful that there is some level of transparency and yet privacy. So it's always good to leave the door uh, ajar, uh, especially, it uh, goes without saying, if one has a female penitent, one should leave the door ajar. Uh, don't close it all the way. Make sure that it's, it's open enough so that someone can peek in and see that there are people in there and a confession is being her. Uh, if you had an office with doors or windows uh, but could close it so that it, there's nothing audible coming out of the room, that would be an ideal situation. You could use such a room as that for a confession. So we just have to find alternative spaces if there's too much activity in the church itself. Uh, we might have to be a little bit creative. What about confession boxes, as they're called, confessionals? Uh, they're great. Unfortunately, that's not a custom that we have in most of our churches, but the reason they were created is entirely practical. There's a reason why they created confessionals, because they're absolutely safe. The penitent goes in one side, the priest goes in the other. There's a barrier between the two of them, so there's no danger of any accusation of impropriety or any kind of problem. The penitent can't grab the priest's throat. <laughs> If, if he becomes angry for some reason. So it was a very smart thing to do, very wise. And then there's a screen, of course, between the penitent and the confessor, so you speak through the screen. It was a wonderful invention. We got rid of it, but maybe it's something we should consider bringing back because it sure does work. And for those of you who may have been at the Conyers Monastery over the years here in the Atlanta area, in the chapel underneath in the crypt, they have confessionals, and they're terrific. We've used those for priest retreats. That is the best, that's probably the ideal method for hearing a confession. Thank you. Great question. Other comments or questions? Yes, Father. The main thing is 
to reassure them that the Lord loves them and we are called to rest in his intercession and in his prayer. It makes one think of the writing of St. Paul in his epistles and various places, but you think particularly of his reference where he says that the Spirit of God prays in and through us with groanings that cannot be uttered, so that God himself is in us praying, interceding, uniting, even though we are feeble and frail and weak. And it is the Spirit's life and work in us, operating in us, that unites us to God our efforts in the prayer life, in the spiritual life, should never be conceived of as in any way Pelagian. We're not doing this to uh, win God's favor. We're not achieving anything in relationship to God other than what St. Augustine said when he said that God crowns his own work in his own children. So whatever we are doing, we are doing it entirely by God's grace and I think we need to teach our penitents and those who seek spiritual counsel that they, like ourselves, must rest in Jesus, trust in his high priestly intercession on our behalf, see ourselves as incorporated into his life, united to him in his oblation to the Father, his sonship, his filial love and obedience, and trust that the Holy Ghost who lives in us is praying in and through us so that we can begin to alleviate anxieties about our own imperfections. Of course, we do need to struggle. Ascesis is necessary in the Christian life. We are waging a war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That war is taking place principally in our own heart and in our own soul. The battleground of the spiritual life is our own interior being. And so we do have to struggle, and that's a conscious effort. We have to make an effort. The effort is our cooperation. And again, it's a matter of desire. It's a matter of heart, a matter of hunger and thirst, a matter of will. But if we encourage our people to remember that they are not doing this on their own towards God, but rather, it is God who is doing it through us. Like the mystery of the presentation of our Lord in the temple, which we just celebrated this past Sunday, the purification of Our Lady. On that feast, we see something very mysterious. We see God offered to God. We see the Son offered to the Father in the temple. Well, we take our place in that offering. If we conceive more and more of our life of prayer as an entrance into Christ's intercession with the Father, and that we are incorporated into Christ, we participate in our Lord as he goes to the Father in his eternal intercession for us, then we begin to see that our cooperation is an opening, it's a docility to the Holy Spirit, and we must be receptive so that the emphasis becomes less on our own inadequacies and failures. The emphasis becomes more and more on Christ. He is the one who is doing this work in and through us. The Mass is a perfect example of that. What we bring to the Mass is the oblation of bread and wine, and we bring ourselves, our souls, and bodies. It is Christ who makes Calvary present sacramentally and then unites 
the gifts which are transformed into him and ourselves into him, so that we become one body and one blood with him, joined to him in his one sacrifice. Christian prayer is a plugging in to Christ's eternal prayer to the Father, his perfect love, his perfect prayer, his perfect life. So if we can learn to rest in that and not worry so much about ourselves, the more we will grow. That's how I would encourage people to look at prayer in general. So if we feel that we're failing in our prayer, we're not making enough effort, we're, we're really looking at it the wrong way. We should see it as our incorporation, our involvement, our plugging in to what Christ is doing, and he then will work in and through us. He makes up all the difference. Great question. Other comments or questions? Way in the back, Father Brian. What we've found is it's good to have a morning time for people that are not working, that are retired or available during the day. And there needs to be one time during the week that's definitely in the evening for people who are working and can come after work. Our time is a little early and in Atlanta traffic is really tough. Uh, 6 p.m., I mean, that's very, very hard. As some of you may have discovered, if you have a morning meeting in Atlanta, and you live any distance from the destination, you're probably going to be late for the meeting. Uh, that's just how it is in Atlanta because the traffic is a nightmare. But it's good to have a morning time, preferably before mass, because the thing is, is that people that want to make a confession, want to have their absolution, have their souls clean before they make their communion. So it's optimal to have confession times before mass. So we do that before mass on Wednesday in the morning, and then Thursday in the evening. Weekends are great, Saturdays are fine, and in some parishes, having a morning time on Saturday or an afternoon time on Saturday works best. It is a bit of trial and error and just testing out what works best. Something else that we should mention is that it's very good to publish the fact that people can make an appointment for a confession too. We do that also, and we remind our people that the priests are available here to hear confessions by appointment, and there are people that will, in fact, do that. Uh, this coming Sunday, in fact, I have a confession after High Mass on Sunday by appointment. Uh, so hopefully we can be flexible enough in our time and ministry to allot time, allow time for it. And the more we encourage it, the more it will grow and the more we will find ourselves hearing confessions, which is fantastic. That's our goal is, is to do that. Thank you. That's an excellent question. There's no such thing as a bad question in church. All right. Any other comments or questions? Anything else? Maybe one more? Sure. More of a practical. Um, in the confessional cell, uh, penitents tend to want to talk about tendencies rather than sins. So is, as a confessor, is it important for me to have people focus on number and kind, or is tendencies acceptable? It's a fantastic question. It really needs to be both. If somebody is hesitant to identify number of times or occasions in which a sin was committed, the, the confessor can gently guide the person to realize that one needs to identify those in order to overcome them. 
So it really needs to be both. If there's a tendency that definitely needs to be addressed and can be, but the number of times a particular sin is committed can help to show what the underlying cause is. And so one can look at it from that pastoral point of view and gently guide the penitent to talk about, well, why is this happening? Why is this being repeated? Think about why this recurs. So I think it's important. It doesn't invalidate a confession to, to fail numbers and the like. It's not a numbers game. Anglicans are far, far, far more pastoral in our approach to the question. We seek to get underneath instances and numbers and the like and see what is the origin of the sin. I think it's helpful, though, if one can find both. Yes, Father. There is definitely a line. And if a confessor begins to see patterns of addictive behavior, self-abusive or destructive behavior, at that point, the confessor can recommend counseling. Counsel is intended for the particular sins being confessed and spiritual antidotes to overcome those acts of sin. But an ongoing process of counseling is not part of the sacrament of penance. There is a line there, and that is a matter of our discernment. In a sense, the line is determined by us. We determine as confessors when this is more than merely confession, but has stepped over into the area of the need for counseling or even therapy or treatment, and that does happen, it happens all the time. But if one gets to that point, then the confessor is free to recommend counseling. But there's, there's supposed to be something a little bit, bit succinct about hearing a confession. It's not meant to be an hour long. A good confession should only take 10 minutes, maybe 15. It should be relatively brief. Or if somebody is really concise, it can take five minutes. If they know exactly what they need to confess, they come in, they confess, they go out. And they're determined not to sin again. Of course, we should be willing to take as much time as we need with the penitent. One of the things about the Anglican pastoral tradition is that we're far more generous with our time. Uh, we're far more available and far more patient than our counterparts in other churches. And that, that's characteristic of the Anglican method of, of pastoral care, of pastoralia. But we don't want to drift into counseling. Uh, the sacrament of penance has a specific purpose and if there's additional need, then that needs to be carried outside of it. But that line, to a great extent, is something that we have to determine. It's a fantastic question. Yes, Father. Can uh, confession be outside the church within the secure parameters? Outside the church, but within secure parameters? Great question. Yes, a confession can technically be heard anywhere. Now, it's preferable to be in a space that is secure where people will not be present to overhear the confession. The priest needs, needs to take care that the confession is under the seal and that it is not audible to other people. And outside a church, absolutely. 
in any space that is needful or, or works well. Uh, there have been confessors at synods who have used rooms, hotel rooms, for confession. Uh, there are stories of some of the great confessors in the Anglican tradition who would visit parishioners and use a pantry in a person's home to hear confessions of a family. Uh, I have heard confessions in private homes in a, a private room off of a living room. I do that regularly, in fact. So one is certainly permitted to do that, and it is permissible for confessions to be heard outside church. You take the sacrament with you. The sacrament is you. So you can take, as a priest, you can take that to homes. Uh, certainly, you know, the whole reference to the sick, nursing homes, hospitals, care places. You can certainly hear confessions in all those places and any place as long as the seal of confession is preserved. Yes, great question. Most definitely. Yes, Father. What are we to do Well, in that case, we have to take them at their word. Uh, if we have the opportunity, we can try to encourage them to look more broadly, more comprehensively. But it may be that the penitent is suffering with a, a splinter in the mind. This is the preoccupation. And if that is what is unquieting the conscience in that particular confession, then it would certainly be okay to dwell on. Ah. Well, again, we're really, we can encourage them to be more transparent and to be more reflective on the number of sins they actually have. At the end of the day, though, if they come in with this one thing, this one overarching sin, and that's all they want to talk about, they don't want to say anything else, you know, as long as they are coming, we would have to presume at least in that case, that they are genuinely contrite for it. The, the thing about the Anglican tradition is nobody comes to us to confession usually unless they really want to be forgiven because there is no compulsion to come. So in that case, the conscience is really troubled. And I would say it's all right to proceed with the confession and absolve that sin. Yeah, thank you. Drilling down too much? It... it yeah, it depends on the soul. And if one knows that soul, one can know how far one can go. <laughs> if one doesn't know, that's okay. You, you know, sort of like what we said about our Lord himself. He'll take what he can get. And sometimes that's what we have to do in a confession. And it may not be that the person is intentionally withholding sins. It may be that this one sin is so painful that it, it clouds everything else. Yes, that's a great question. Thank you. Very good. Yes. The magic man. I have uh, some acquaintances that uh, are Roman Catholic. And their perception of confession is that the priest is this wonder maker, magic man, that once he announces this thing, because it was the priest that said it, all things are good and, and you're made whole. Do you have any suggestions on how I, I or we could approach 
approach someone with that perspective and help them to perhaps better understand the Anglican traditional Sure. It's an interesting point of view, Father, and you do hear that. It sort of relates to the anecdotal tale of my grandma who, you know, heard these stories and repeated them. And there is the conception in some churches that the priest is just sort of a, a sacramatic 2000. You know, he's just a sacrament machine and that he dispenses these sacraments and they have, of course, they do have an objective effect, but everything is right. So my life is right. If I just go to the confession and I get my sacrament, I get absolution, everything's great. And I can just keep on going on as I had before, right? Which is the antithesis of everything that we've been saying today about the need for amendment of life and confession. I think this is where we could start. That's, it's a very broad and also a very deep subject, but maybe this would be a place to begin. Sacraments are not magic because sacraments are means of grace that require faith. There is a necessity of faith in all seven sacraments. Sacraments are not magic because magic is something that manipulates one's environment apart from moral considerations. Well, a sacrament is not that at all. A sacrament is a means of grace in which God's objective gift of grace is imparted to us and meets our willing and cooperating faith. So the sacramental gift is objectively valid. That is, it gives the power and grace of God because God promises and covenants that, that gift of grace, and that is objective, but it bears no fruit if there is no faith. This is the opposite of magic. So, for example, baptism. When a child is baptized, it is the faith of the church that believes on behalf of the child and brings the child into saving life and faith in Jesus Christ. It is the faith of the godparents and the sponsors and the parents exercised on behalf of the child, believing unto salvation, that makes the objective grace of baptism fruitful, bearing fruit in the soul of the child. In the Eucharist, the Catechism of the Prayer Book tells us there are three things in the Eucharist, the outward and visible sign, the forms of bread and wine, the thing signified, that is the thing under the sign, and that is the body and blood of Christ, and the third thing is the benefit, the virtus sacramenti, the virtue of the sacrament. So, as St. Paul warns us, those who are not in a state of grace, when they receive the Eucharist, they receive the outward and visible sign, the forms of bread and wine. They receive the thing signified, the true body and blood of Christ under the form, but they don't receive the benefit. In fact, they receive the opposite. They receive condemnation. It's not beneficial to them. Uh, it's called the... the uh, the mandacatio impiorum, the eating of the wicked. And they do that. That's what Paul is saying, that there are people who may receive the Eucharist in a state of sin without repentance and love and faith, and it does injury to them. So in the case of the Eucharist, without living faith, repentance, hope, love, the Eucharist can be injurious, not beneficial. So the sacraments are not in any way magic. Faith is 
is what makes the grace given in the sacrament vital, vibrant, alive in the soul. For example, what happens to a child who is baptized into the faith and then lapses from the Christian faith altogether and commits serious sin? St. Augustine says that the grace of baptism then lies dormant in the soul. The objective gift of baptism is there, but it's not being used. So it lies dormant. Now we can take all this to penance. If you go to confession and you're not really sorry for your sins and you fully intend to commit the same sins over and over again, the absolution imparts an objective grace, but that objective grace bears no benefit in the soul. I hope that helps. Thank you. All right. Other comments or questions, please. We've got plenty of time, although you may be ready for a break. You've been going all day. You've all been very patient and lovely and wonderful to bear with me so long. And I'm so grateful for your kindness and your willingness to be in here today. Thank you. Other thoughts, comments, questions? Yes, Cynthia. Yes, and that's a very serious pastoral issue. She's coming from a place of, of woundedness, most likely, of hurt, perhaps uh, just a feeling of, of the church dominating her in a negative way, uh, making this requirement, putting her in positions that felt very unnatural, uncomfortable in terms of her life, her prayer life, and this generates anxiety. That's a pastoral issue, it's a serious issue. Father Sean and I were having a conversation about this on our break, about the wisdom of not making it compulsory in Anglicanism. And the wisdom of not making it compulsory is the sense of freedom. That for us, when you have sacramental confession, the confessor and the penitent come together in a free relationship based on the mutual desire that the penitent be forgiven and receive mercy, goodness, and love from God and receive peace and reconciliation. And when there's no compulsion, the sense of fear and threat most often is taken out of it. The person is willingly coming to this, seeking what the Lord gives in the sacrament, seeking 
the mercy of Christ. And that may be the tack to take in dealing with anxiety. It would be very helpful for such a person to sit down and talk with a priest about it extensively before ever even giving consideration to a sacramental confession. But there is this, if a person goes to a priest to talk about making a confession and having the anxiety about it, the person is already wanting to make a confession. They're already on their way. Because they wouldn't even have that conversation if they weren't thinking about it, right? So that's a good sign. And, and I think an assiduous priest will take the time in that situation to sort of explore what is going on there, where is the anxiety coming from, and then find practical solutions to try to alleviate that. But the most practical solution is the fact that this is an act of love and not an act of compulsion, not an act of discipline. And that, that would help, I think. Yes, Father? Shame, yes. One of the greatest barriers is shame. People can feel very intimidated, very frightened by their sins and don't want to disclose them even to a priest. But that's where our job comes in is to show that Christ forgives us for what may make us ashamed. And, and our Lord can move us beyond shame to relief, to relief of that shame. And a lot of anxiety certainly does come from shame. All of that would be in the interior forum. The reason for the shame, the reason for the anxiety is itself a matter of confession. But pastorally, it is our challenge to guide people like that, to see that it can help them. We can never force somebody to go to confession, particularly under those circumstances. And the fact that it frightens people is only natural. In most cases, however, the fright or the intimidation that comes from thinking about going to confession is exactly why we need to go to confession. Because what is there, what needs to be confessed, is what's holding us back in our spiritual life. But there are cases, particularly of, of those who've come out of the Roman Catholic tradition, who experienced confession in an extremely negative way. And it's very real, and that does, call upon us, it summons from us a great deal of pastoral love and charity and goodwill and just bearing patiently. Again, that person doesn't have to make a confession sacramentally ever, but the fact that the question or the discussion is even happening may indicate that there's more under the surface and there may be a desire to do it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. That's complex. That is complex. That would take some time to work through with the individual. And we face that kind of thing all the time. Father Ellis, did you have your hand up? Yes, I, I'm saying, I just wanted to express a little more on that. The person is very shameful or afraid to voice it to you. Can you do a silent confession? I say, no, then, uh, without you hearing it. Can he do a silent confession of whatever is worried or Yes. Um, confession by letter? 
Well, you know, there are some errors in Bishop Webb's book. <laughs> there are some errors in that book. Let me give you an, all right, that, that's an error. All right. Yes, you can write your confession out, but virtual sacraments are invalid. I had a wonderful question recently from a priest who asked, can I hear a confession over Skype? The answer is no. Sacraments have to be in person because they are personal exchanges between God's grace and the human person, and they must be mediated in a personal and direct way through the priesthood. That's why we have the outward signs which are applied to us so that the human nature of Christ is applied to us through that outward invisible sign. As E.L. Maskell says, all seven sacraments are the mediation of Christ's human nature to our human nature in a physical way. The sacraments are the incarnation. The sacraments are the incarnation here and now prolonged under these mystic signs. And so a written confession, although a good self-examination, uh, could not be absolved unless the penitent read it to a confessor. Yes. Now that's if he brings it the letter to the altar, that's great. He just has to read it. There has to be the auricular. There has to be the verbalization because it is from the soul that the mouth speaks, and there there is this mystic interaction that takes place with the articulation of sin, and then the absolution that's given to remit those sins. So it, it's wonderful to write the sins out in a letter form, and it can be presented to the priest, certainly for him to read it over, but it still needs to be verbalized in order for the matter of the sacrament to be valid. Yes, Father Manise. That's true. And if, if you can't hear what Father said, that's absolutely brilliant. Shame is the assertion that I'm the mistake. Guilt is I did something wrong and I'm conscious. Confession is meant to deal with the question of guilt, not shame. Shame is a pastoral issue, though, that has to be addressed in its own right. But that's not what we're dealing with. That's not the matter of confession, per se. I would agree with that, although there is, of course, an interrelationship there. And for us, our approach to the sacrament of penance is entirely holistic, and we're dealing with the whole person in their spiritual life, and we want to address where we can to help them overcome the sins that impede their relationship with God. So uh, it's, it's interesting. Maybe that's not semantical. I think there is a distinction there. I was going to say, oh, there was another error of Bishop Webb, by the way. Uh, let me point that out. He says that the confessor can bring up previously confessed sins to the penitent in confession on his own initiative. That's wrong. No. In confession, the confessor cannot bring up previous confessions, previous sins confessed by the penitent. No, that we, we, we can't do that. 
So Bishop Webb at least has uh, may, maybe two errors in the book. Uh, we should write our own book on compassion. Maybe we can write a book based on, yes, follow. Oh, now that's different. Okay. Would that be valid? One could say that it is. That could, that indeed could be valid if the person's, person is incapable of speech. Yes. Uh, in that case, the person has expressed their sin, and, and it would make perfect sense that he write the sin. So, Father, back to your point, in that case, I would certainly say that it, it, it is valid. Uh, right. Yes, it's a letter in the hand, and and to the earlier point about that, the absolution has to be given in person. Exactly. Exactly. Ah, uh, good. Good. So there we go. Well, that clarifies things. He's right after all. Okay. Yay, Bishop Webb. He's he's right. Absolution must be given in person. And there's no such thing as a virtual absolution. Just like there's no such thing as a virtual Eucharist. We can't hold up the phone <laughs> and have the priest say over the elements, this is my body, this is my blood. That would not be a valid consecration. So the absolution has to be given in person. Yes, excellent. We're getting quite theological in some of this. That's excellent. It's a theological group. Yes, Linda. Yes, uh, or it could be that if a person brings up a, a sin that they committed, maybe they, they are feeling that they, they haven't been forgiven by God. As we were saying in, under the rubric of scrupulosity, that actually would be a really good thing to bring up. And the confessor can, then can address that issue and the need to relinquish the claim on one's own sin and hand it over to our Lord so that he can truly take it away and take away that guilt. Because Christ came into the world to save us from the consequence of our sins and to free us from guilt by his redeeming blood. So if this is a, a matter of some repetition in confession, it might betray a scruple about whether or not God has truly forgiven the sin and that itself needs to be addressed by the confessor to the help of the penitent. So it's not always a bad thing. Creighton, I see your hand up in the back. The priest may ask for permission to discuss the subject. The priest may ask for permission. Permission can be denied. But the priest can ask permission to discuss the subject. And you can say it just like that. 
May we please discuss the subject as it was confessed earlier? And if the penitent says yes, then you can discuss it. So it's, it's, it's a relationship. And that's one of the things that we stress today is that the confessor-penitent relationship, it's a personal relationship. And if a penitent uses, and it's advisable for the penitent to use a regular confessor, it's not really that healthy or helpful to go to around to 10 or 25 different priests. One needs a confessor who begins to learn how to help this individual. And if you have that kind of relationship, the priest can ask for permission. Again, it could be denied, but if it's permitted, then that dis discussion can take place. I will mention something that was mentioned earlier. What happens in a confession if a child comes to confession and confesses abuse? That's, that's, that's a question that's been asked by several of you today. As long as the seal of confession is in fact protected, it would be permitted anonymously to reach out for some form of help, but one cannot break the seal of confession. Just like the old saying goes, if, if someone comes into confession and the penitent says, Father, I'm going to put poison in the chalice at mass today. The old saying is that the priest would have to drink it because he can't break the seal of confession. He can't do anything to indicate that he knows something. He can't alter his behavior based on, on what he heard in confession, or he might break the seal of confession. The seal exists so that everyone can go to confession for the most mortal sins imaginable safely. It's a complicated subject, but in the case certainly of, of dealing with that, if you have a child, for example, who goes to confession, it's under the seal, but the child has not committed a sin, but nevertheless, one would have to act very cautiously, anonymously, to try to find help, yes. That's right. And one of those is harm. Right. So if you sell harm or harm to another person, there's no mandated report. It's complicated, isn't it? It puts us in a, a very complex situation. I mean, God willing, we're not going to hear this in the context of a confession. But what happens if we do? Well, the seal of confession is inviolable. It's inviolable. And yet, if we could figure out a way not to break it and yet at the same time contact someone for help, we can do so. I don't know. That's probably the first time I've said that all day, but I don't know. That's a very difficult situation.
That would be terrible. Yes, and there have been priests imprisoned for not breaking the seal of confession. In fact, we have martyr saints put to death for not breaking the seal of confession. That's true. But in the case of a child, of course, the first and most important thing to say is, above all, our priority must be the protection of a child. So how we would sort that out in practical terms puts us in a real bind. But you've got, you've got to do something. You've got to do something. Now there are a lot of hands going up. Yes, Father Paul. The priest could do something about it, about it himself without necessarily breaking the seal. He could, as long as he doesn't betray what he knows in, his, in, in any way from the seal. Yes, he could act on his own. <laughs> Absolutely. Mary, yes. Absolutely. And you can ask for permission to act in that case. It's, I mean, that would be a very unusual thing to have happen, but yes, you could. And then you could act at least with the full knowledge and consent, and you're not breaking the seal of confession in that case. You're not breaking the matter of confession, but rather you've taken it outside the internal forum. The seal is still inviolable, and then you can act. Yes, Bishop. Yeah, well, my Right. Right. Uh, well, this is the way historically that's been handled. The old saying in seminary was, let's say that someone comes and confesses that kind of mortal sin. It's like the movie The Exorcist. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that movie. It's actually my favorite film of all time because it's Catholicism 101. It's the sacraments and the power of the church over evil. It's, it's a brilliant film. And in that, Father Kara says, and he's right, I mean, they... William Peter Blatty was a Catholic author, writer, producer. And Father Kara says, what if somebody comes and confesses a murder? And he says, well, I can't turn him in, but I can try to convince him to turn himself in. That's the way it's historically been handled, so as not to break the seal. Same, same thing would apply here. The seal of confession can be difficult business. So you can withhold absolution. You can try to persuade the person who has confessed such a crime to turn themselves in, but according to the seal of confession, you can't turn him in. At least certainly not directly you can't, or there'll be a violation of the seal itself. Yeah, Bishop. Yeah, I can't back to the question. If the sin is already committed and you're talking about going, going 
They are. I mean, from, from bless me, Father, to go in peace, that liturgical rite is, is covered by the seal of confession. It's under the seal. And we are charged to keep it inviolable for the protection of all Christian faithful. But, you know, this, this is the hot debate subject in seminary. How far does the seal of confession go? The, the historic orthodox answer is that it's absolute. That it's absolutely, complete, inviolable. Because if you break it, then it breaks it for everyone. That's the whole point of the seal of confession. It's unbreakable because if, if it is broken, then nobody can trust it. And then the interior form of confession is, is compromised. And that's, that's why we have the seal of confession. But we have had some very interesting and compelling questions about it, to which there are not easy solutions. Not easy solutions. We should pray that these are instances that are indeed very, very rare. We should certainly pray for that. But if we're put in that position, um, you know, you can always, there are sins reserved, reserved to a bishop. And a priest can go to a bishop and ask questions about a confession without breaking the seal, not identifying individual people or anything like that. But the priest can go to a bishop and ask for counsel or even refer the penitent to the bishop. And there used to be reserved sins. Abortion used to be a reserved sin. It was reserved only to a bishop. Sacrilege or desecration of the blessed sacrament was reserved to the bishop. So we are permitted to consult our bishop if there are specific questions. And we should all be encouraged to do that. Absolutely. I did see other hands up around several. Father, yes. It is. That's excellent. Definitely. And one of the things that sets us apart as Anglican clergy is that generally we are disposed to want to help people and give them the time that they need. And so although the sacrament of penance may be designed to address specific sins, recurring sins, and address that, confess, give absolution, generally we, we tend to be a lot more generous with our time. And we will, 
if, if, we, if we need to provide help to somebody, we can end the confession and go into counseling or end the confession and meet at a later time or shift gears and, and then spend the time needed. But the main thing is for us to be at the disposal of our people that can never be overvalued, overestimated. We need to be available to give that kind of time to people in need, people in distress. It's very important. Father, very beautiful. Thank you. Father, now you had your hand up. I'm sorry. I've been going around the room. Let me come back to you. Um, through the years, I've had people come to me for counseling, um, but not sealed with confession, not under the formulary of you know, Muslim compromise sin, but just for counseling. Mm -hmm. And in my pastoral estimation, I needed to seek help from other sources to assist them in their needs. Afterwards, they come back to me angry that I broke the seal of confession. Ah. Did not happen. It's not confession. But do you have any suggestions on how to handle that? The main thing with confession is that sometimes with penitence, they just need to be reminded up front that this is under the seal. And if somebody wants help, then we need to speak about that preferably outside of confession and talk about how we find them assistance. We, we are bound to the seal of confession, but outside of that, there's a lighter, it's still sacred, but there's a lighter sense of confidentiality. We're not gonna betray private information, but outside of confession, there's a flexibility then to negotiate how we might be able to help such a person. In this case, it's just incumbent upon us to be clear that when people come into confession, they're not coming to complain about their neighbor's sins, and they're not coming to have a chit-chat, and they're not coming to have a casual discussion. They're coming to make their confession, and this is under the seal. It's unfortunate that in that case someone was angry because they thought it was under the seal when it was not. Although we are still you know, under privileged communication, and our interactions with people in this situation would be considered confidential, private. It's always good to get the person's permission. What, one of the things I try to do when I can and ask one can is if, if there's obviously a need, get from the person verbal permission to reach out for other resources and other help. Try to get their permission. And if you can do that, then there shouldn't be as much of a controversy about it. Good question. We're running out of time. We, we are almost out of time. I'll take any final comments or questions. Well, thank you. We do, we do have a hand up, Father. Yes, you have a comment? Question? question. Well, you have the rubric in the visitation of the sick that says a person can be moved to make a special confession of sins. And that's when we say the diocese authorizes the priest's manual. Let me give you a copy of the rite of confession. And with that, you have an authorized and official liturgy of confession. We are prima 
prayer book, but not solo prayer book. <laughs> so. Thank you. Thank you.